Welcome to the Night Parlor. My name is Joshua Rex, your host. Today my guest is Curtis M. Lawson. Curtis is an author of unapologetically weird and transgressive fiction, fantastical graphic novels, and dark poetry. His work ranges from technicolor pulp adventures to bleak cosmic horror. He is the author of the novels The Devoured, It's a Bad, 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 Bad World, To Kill an Archangel, Bad World 2, and Blackheart Voice Choir, which made it to the preliminary ballot for a 2019 Bram Stoker Award and the collections Black Pantheons and Devil's Night from Weird House Press. Recently, his poetry was featured in the HWA Poetry Showcase, Volume 6, and Spectral Realms, Issues 11 and 12 from Hippocampus Press. He has also written and published several comics and graphic novels. Curtis is a member of the Horror Writers Association and the organizer of the Weird Live Horror Reading Series, as well as the stellar podcast, Weird Transmissions. He lives in Salem, Massachusetts with his wife and their son. Curtis, thanks for visiting the Night Parlor. Thank you for having me. I wanted to start by asking who and what were some of your formative influences? And do you think they still influence and inspire you now in your work? Yeah, I would, I would say they do. Um, you know, it's interesting because the, the first horror book I probably picked up was Cycle of the Werewolf. Um, by Stephen King. And, you know, I knew King because of, you know, movies and such mainly at that point. And everybody knows King, obviously. But what really drew me was I, I was already, it's about the time I had fallen into comics. I fell really hard into comics when I was like 12 years old. And then at the library, I saw Cycle of the Werewolf and it had Bernie Wrightson doing the artwork. Um, and I knew him from, from comics. So I picked it up. And Cycle of the Werewolf in particular, I think is something that stuck with me as a huge influence uh, as a writer and a self-publisher with, I guess, um, my appreciation for, for illustrated books and for, for merging art and words. Um, that really stuck with me. And the, the structure of it, it, it was one of the, it was the first book that really made me think about story structure, um, you know, how it's broken up by the month and such. Um, so King was an early influence, but um, I wouldn't say that he was a he was a main influence on me. Um, he's kind of hit or miss for me. Uh, Lovecraft was was the next you know the big one, um, and Lovecraft is still to this day a major influence on me. More so, his use of language and the kind of sense of of nihilism in his work less than um i know a lot of people get hung up on on specific imagery with him and specific mythos um, factors but those aren't as big for me it's more his use of language and that kind of anachronistic tone to his work and the nihilism and then you know comics were a huge influence on me as was as were horror movies and i think that those still kind of inform my work. People say that my, my work is very cinematic 
And I, I think I take a lot of my storytelling cues from when I was writing comics, growing up reading comics and things um, like old Wes Craven and John Carpenter movies. So, yeah, tell me some more about your comic influence. Were, were there any specific comics that you that you gravitated towards? Um, well, when I was a kid, you know, it was the Marvel stuff that got me when I first started off. I actually. What drew me into comics, they were at the little convenience store near my house. They had these Marvel trading cards. And, uh, you know, I started buying those. And then I got kind of into the lore of it from reading the back of the cards. And I had my dad take me to this comic book store in Boston. And I bought a bunch of stuff there. So it was mainly superhero stuff to to start off. Um, and then I got into some of the, the quote-unquote, darker Marvel stuff like Ghost Rider and... Uh, uh, the Midnight Suns things, but Marvel did this one book called Hellstorm Prince of Lies, and it was kind of their answer to Sandman and uh, Hellblazer. And that book really, um, it was really dark towards the the end of the run, and it, it was separated from the rest of the Marvel universe. And it dealt with a lot of not just um like occult themes but also philosophical themes and there's this this one storyline called soul survivors where all these these coma patients wake up with different souls in their body they're the souls of, of damned people and they've all been damned to hell for various reasons like one person was you know damned to hell because they were gay one person was damned to hell because um of some war atrocity or whatnot, but it was all kind of different shades of, of sin, I guess. And the main character, Damien Hellstrom, decides that these people didn't deserve to go to hell. Um, and he storms the gates of heaven and then blah, blah, blah. So that was a, a big influence on, I guess, what kind of fiction would interest me going on it was fiction that asked these kind of, you know, these interesting questions. Um, and approaches these kind of philosophical ideas without beating you over the head with an answer. Um, and then there was the Max, which is probably my favorite comic of all time. And the Max is just a weird kind of trippy comic that it emerges kind of, you know, I guess pop style superhero aspects with kind of just weird, almost weird fiction-esque, um, just, I guess, strangeness. It, it, basically, it's just about this homeless guy who thinks he's a superhero, but there's also another world where he's this kind of hero for a jungle queen, and there's a serial killer slash rapist in the real world who's a sorcerer in this other world, and you're never quite sure which world is real for a while. Um, that was a that was a huge influence on me, and I've always wanted to, I've always aspired to, to write something, I guess, um, that's that leaves the reader wondering like that, you know, wondering what's real and what isn't, instead of kind of neatly wrapping things up. So th those were the biggest ones. Yeah, not, not neatly snipped and, and maybe placed in different polar areas and then leaving the middle to sort of be this place where good and evil end up in one direction or another. You're talking about more, more, more of a middle area where real life happens, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. And even, you know, the, the aspect of, of what is real, 
Um, you know, I like, I like the concept that we don't really know, you know, we, we have a, we have our ideas of reality that shift based on, you know, whatever data or belief systems that we have, but none of us really grasp the truth of reality, like the, the true truth of reality. Um, so I'd like things where that's kind of left in question too. Mm-hmm. Uh, going back to Lovecraft, do you find that there was an evolution in his influence on your work? Uh, maybe, for example, were you interested in the monsters first and then maybe more into the nihilism later or towards maybe the eloquence of the language later or reverse? Were you more into the language and then did you get into the monsters? Was there any sort of change like that over time? For, for me, so I got into Lovecraft kind of backwards. Um, when I was, I don't know, maybe like, 13 or 14, I kind of fell into like, you know, the Barnes and Noble occult section at the bookstore, um, kind of via Dungeons and Dragons. And I picked up the, what they call the Simon Necronomicon. Now it's this, this book called the Necronomicon. It's got this black cover with this sigil on it. It has almost nothing to do with Lovecraft. Um, and it's a, like a fraudulent text claiming to be the Necronomicon. And the first half of the book is all introduction kind of stuff, talking about the history of how it was supposedly found and its connections to Aleister Crowley and the Third Reich and blah, 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 and Lovecraft himself. Um, and that, that's kind of how I fell into Lovecraft was through that. And then this band Morbid Angel drew a lot of their lyrical content from that Simon Necronomicon. So from there, I got into Lovecraft and I guess what, so it was kind of the occult aspect, not so much the monsters, but the, I guess the, the mysticism of it, the, the mystery of like the Necronomicon and of, you know, Abdul Al-Hazred and these sort of things, which drew me in. But at first it was uh, when I actually started reading him, I guess it was it was just the tone that really stuck with me. Um, not so much any particular mythos factor or monsters. I wasn't in it for, for Cthulhu or Azathoth or anything particular. Um, but it was just, I don't know. It, it, I liked the, the anachronistic feel of it. And I always kind of felt, especially when I was younger, I felt like I was out of time. Like I wasn't living when I was supposed to. So Lovecraft's prose just, I don't know, it felt kind of, I felt like a kindred spirit there. Um, and it, it works, I don't know, it just worked for me really well. And then, you know, I got interested in the mythos and I, I am, but I'm not, that's not the main thing for me. It never has been. Um, and I like more so how he plays with ideas of, um, whether it be like music or art, like in, uh, you know, Pickman's model or, um, or even things like strange geometry. Like I, I, you know, people make fun of Lovecraft because of like, you know, oh, people are afraid of the strange, you know, angle of this, you know, up in this attic, but like, like in an angle that the human mind can't comprehend it, that's fascinating to me. And I know maybe it's just because I'm a nerd, but um, 
Yeah, so I was going to add that the, the, the advent of, of the breakthrough of so, so many physics breakthroughs was going on at that, that time. And all of reality was being bent in that way. I mean, quantum physics was, the understanding of quantum physics was exploding. So yeah, that, that idea of angles of anything could be totally terrifying. Yeah. What are these things that are having an effect on our lives in this way? And what are these new terrors? They might not even be monsters. They might be angles. <laughs> yes. You know, and... Um... As I, I got a little bit older, the I really came to appreciate that part of it. A lot of Lovecraft's personal fears came from him being kind of an armchair scientist, you know. And um, his first writing was really like a little like science zine that he started when he was a teenager. So, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a my, like a molecular bio dropout, so I'm kind of a science nerd too. And um, I, know I really liked how he merged, I guess it wasn't even sci-fi, wasn't even really a thing, how he kind of pioneered science fiction with horror together in, uh, in the sense of mysticism, for, which was really just us not understanding this, this advanced science um, all around us. But yeah, those, the way that he approached terror instead of just this thing can kill me or, you know, this thing can rip my guts out, you know, um, the psychological aspects and in the questioning of reality, like you said, at that point in time when, when physics was exploding. Um, yeah. I think China Mayville had, had a good quote about it. We do not understand the world that we've stepped into. He was mentioning it with regards to Lovecraft and, and yeah. And the, and the general period that they have no idea. It's all being redefined. So we, we really don't know what's happening. And, and, uh, it, it opens up an entire new catalog of horrors. <laughs> Absolutely. Right about. <laughs> and, you know, I, I get really, I guess, more worked up about long-term existential stuff that's never going to impact me. Um, like, the, you know, I'll, I'll stay up at night and, like, being terrified of, like, the heat death of the universe. Um, but that's... Um, sorry, my kid's making a bunch of noise in the other room. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But yeah, the, the heat death of the universe or or the big, you know, the big crunch, anything like that, um, these big existential ideas really scare me. So I, I, in the, they scare me in a way that I like to be scared. They, they get me thinking, I don't know. They're also you're oddly comforting in some ways. I mean, like Boltzmann's the law of thermodynamics and, well, all right, it's entropy. Everything's everything's moving in this direction, so why worry, right? Yes. <laughs> it's something to terror, but it offers relief at the same time. Absolutely. <laughs> um, moving on from Lovecraft, but uh, sort of in the same vein, somewhere he'd like to visit. You're from Salem, or you've lived in Salem for a long time. Uh, yeah, I've been here like six or seven years. Yeah. Uh, I I'm wondering, does it mean something to you to be a New England writer? Uh, would you say that place forms a crucial part of your voice, your writer's identity, uh, particularly Salem, I suppose, since you've been there for such a long time? Um, I, I would say that place does. I don't know if Salem particularly does for me. Um, like I said, I've been here for six or seven years, but, um, but New England in general, I think, informs my work um, very much. And not just the not just the New England that we know from like King and Lovecraft, not just this kind of um, scenic, uh, you know, small coastal towns and in deep forests, 
um, that does to a great extent, but also things like the, like the MBTA and like the, um, the attitudes within like Boston proper or Cambridge. Um, you know, I spent a long time working in Cambridge and I hung out there when I was a teenager. Um, I grew up around Boston. So I was always on the trains and the buses. And I think that you see a lot of that, the urban aspect of that creep into my writing as well as the more, you know, I guess, um, what people think of when they think of New England with the, the foliage and the coastal towns and the sea. Um, all of it's part of me. So all of it goes into the work. And I think you see that with anybody who lives in a place that has a lot of character. You see it with Southern writers, like Southern Gothic has a lot of character because, um, you know, that stuff, it's just part of those writers and it seeps into, into the work. You see it in King, you see it in Lovecraft for, for around here. And then you get guys like, um, like Cormac McCarthy, I think is a, is a wonderful example. Um, Cormac McCarthy, just, he has this incredible, um, way of getting you into the West. I don't know. Um, yeah, so I, th I think where you're from plays a huge part in you as a writer. Even if you're not writing about real places, I, I would imagine even if you're writing epic fantasy or space operas, what you're around is going to inform how you create worlds. So. Sure, sure. I, I think there's something about regionalism in this country that's really fascinating because people move around. Uh, I, you know, sometimes you find, okay, this person's been here their entire lives, but you find in, in writers say like maybe Nathan Ballingrud where maybe he's lived in a couple of different places. So you have this odd, uh, I guess to use, well, he writes about New Orleans because he lived in New Orleans. So you have this odd, you know, sort of sort of Creole blend of, of different influences. And, and, and I, I partly asked you that because I, I remember you saying that, or I remember, I think reading that, uh, you lived in Los Angeles for a while or your father was in Los Angeles? For a while? When my, my dad was a naval engineer and he was stationed in Long Beach, which is right outside of Los Angeles. We were there for about a year when I was 12. Okay, okay, all right. So I suppose you weren't there long enough for it to have maybe a massive influence say, as, as much as New England, but uh, I, I think it's fascinating. And, and, and you can see it in writers' works often where there is that blending of, of influence from place to place. And it's, it's odd because like you're saying, maybe someone like King, who you look at his work and it's New England, it's Maine, you know, almost almost totally Maine, and you can see that move. Even though his books may be different, you can see that influence move through. Uh, it's interesting when you see a writer, maybe such like like Ballingrud's a good example, I guess, where you're you're in this New Orleans sort of frame of mind, then all of a sudden you're totally somewhere else in the woods uh, with, with a werewolf uh, popping out at you, and it's totally unexpected. And, and I think it makes. I think it makes the work a little more interesting overall. <laughs> I can definitely see that. Yeah, I think that if you have, if the more you have to pull from, and I was on on my podcast, I was talking to, um, this is going to bother me, Daniel, I'm sorry. Anyways, um, he was talking about how places that he's been or places that he wants to go, places that he studied, um, they can sometimes form the basis of his stories. Um, you know, the the geography of of something he's interested in forms the basis 
of the story and he he kind of can build it around that sometimes and i thought that was a really interesting way to go about storytelling yeah it becomes a setting as it were and then you go daniel brahm it was daniel brahm okay yeah i I like that idea because like you're saying, it does seem like it's like a setting. And then, so you place that there, or maybe you have an idea, but the setting ends up being the place for that idea. Somehow that comes together in your mind. Uh, yeah, it's interesting how place can linger with you like that. Yeah. And I will say, you know, with the California thing with me, um, I started this thing on my Patreon page called Couch Surfing Through the 12 Chambers of Hell. And it starts off in California. And it, I really did kind of, just go right back into like these these memories from when I was 12 years old of um that are really strong in my mind of like the sun you know the sun over the ocean in California and the you know I don't know if you've ever spent any time in California um and I don't know what it's like now because I haven't been there in forever it's probably cleaner but the smog just gave the sunsets this beautiful color. Um, and it, like there, there was no place in the world that had these sort of sunsets and it was all because of the pollution in Los Angeles. Um, and those, those sort of um, regional memories or even like just the feeling of the beach out there um, or the, the different vibe that you have walking down a street it's all palm trees instead of like around New England where, you know, you have all these, these big, thick, leafy trees and um, of all different types. So yeah, if you have more, more to draw on, you know, like you said, I think it can make it more interesting. Oh, sure. And things, things can pop up in weird places too. My, my partner and I lived in El Paso recently and walking down some of those streets in those neighborhoods is exactly like you're talking about where the flora and fauna are so different that it, it feels like you're walking on Mars. And, and I think, I think create as someone creative, it, those things can surface in your work in bizarre places. And, and uh, I think it, it says something for experience. It's always good to be open to going places and seeing things. It's, so you never know where those things are going to seed and, and show up later on. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, there's, there's no, I guess there's no replacement really for, for personal experience for, for giving you uh, fodder for stories, you know? Um, and that's one thing that if I'm feeling like in a rut or if I, you know, I keep kind of going back to the same ideas and the same ideas, I'll try to think of small things I can do to change up my, what's not my life per se, not really, making huge changes to my life, but, but anything I can that will offer some sort of new experience so that I have more to draw on, whether it's, you know, a new hobby or going to work a different way or, um, you know, anything like that, that's gonna kind of, I don't know, give me, you know, help me grow as a person and as a writer. Would you say that Becoming a father affected, impacted your creative life. I, I know that it's going to impact your life in general, but I'm specifically interested in in how maybe your artistic voice changed after becoming a parent, um, if, it, if at all. It did on, on a couple of ways. First of all, the biggest way is when I, I had my son when I was 28 years old. And up until that point, um, whether it had been when I was playing in bands or when I was writing comics, I never took it as seriously as I thought I took it. 
And it's because I had all the time in the world. I didn't have any responsibilities. I could always go do this later. So yeah, there was always time to go and hang out with friends and go see movies and oh, I'll write later. I'll, I'll do this later. And uh, once I had a kid, there wasn't. It was like, you know, <laughs> if you're going to do this, you need to make time for it now. And that made it much more pressing for me. Um, so it made me get much more serious about my art because um, I had to sacrifice if I wanted to make it. So I, it affected me in that way, in a very positive way for actually getting stuff done and in, in sitting my butt in the chair and writing. But as far as the voice, yeah, it, I think it changes what you see as important in how you how you view the world, how you view other people and yourself. My first novel, The Devoured, is really an exploration about what it means to be, you know, what it means to be a father for about half the book is about a guy who's just trying to save his son. You know, he's this Confederate soldier and he comes back from the war. He lost the war and uh, his wife's dead and, you know, he's lost everything. And all he wants is to save his son from this kind of demonic force. Um, and he's not really a good guy per se, but it, it's, I was thinking about, you know, like what, what will you go to to save a child? And it was also inspired by someone else I knew who had um, his children had gotten into heroin and, you know, he kind of, um, he'd been wealthy or not wealthy, wealthy, but even well off. And he kind of blew through all his money and favors trying to, to help these kids out and they just wouldn't be helped. Um, so as a father, it made me start thinking, you know, like, where's the line? Like, when do you like, when do you give up? Do you give up? Um, so things like that about, you know, what is, what I find really important changed when I became a dad. And, um, and I guess the ideas of what I think, or what I'm, what I thought I was capable of, you know, um, there are things when I was, before I was a father that I just, you know, things seemed impossible and is you become, as people become reliant on you, you, you have to make those things possible. So you get this whole new kind of view on willpower and, uh, in being effective and, um, and all that sort of philosophy affects the art. And I think you can see it too in, in Black Heart Boys Choir. I thought about one of the big things or themes in that book is when the, the, the kind of four main characters, all their fathers have failed them in some way. And um, I was looking at kind of the ways, things that I'm bitter towards my father about and other people I know who are bitter towards their parents and those kind of fears of me, you know, like I don't want to fail my child in this sort of way. And um, all those sorts of things came into play when I, when I was writing that. So I, th I think it definitely anything like that, that completely changes your worldview and your view of self is going to impact your writing um, profoundly, I would say. Yeah. And speaking of Blackheart uh, boys choir in particular, I, yeah, I, I thought it was a really stunning, honest on the contemplation of the, the nature of abuse, neglect, uh, despondency, uh, and the resulting violence that they can produce. Uh, and I remember thinking that Lucian seemed to wear 
his suit. I, I loved, I loved his suit. I love how he always looked nice in it. And this person that's extremely violent and extremely torn, uh, emotionally, extremely damaged, getting up, putting on that suit. And I was like a carapace to, against the world. And uh, do you find that this book was in some ways a direct influence or, or your, your experience as a dad was an influence on this material, spe speaking specifically to the patriarchy? Because, I mean, you could look at this and say, this is maybe a political thing, you know I mean, or, or something that's talking and responding to the political situation today. But when you look at it with regards to what you were talking about uh, with being a dad, it seems a little more internal or a little more subtle. Uh, yeah, well, I think that, you know, so the, the part that you're talking about for anyone who hasn't read it, there's the, the boys are in some, um, like an auditorium and somebody, can I swear on here? Of course. Okay. <laughs> somebody who's written, fuck the patriarchy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Someone has written, fuck the patriarchy on like one of the seats in Magic Marker. And uh, Lucian is looking at it in, um, he, his basic thought is that, you know, not fuck the patriarchy, fuck our fathers for not being patriarchs. That's the kind of the, the context of this. So, Part of it was that, I don't know, I find the, on a political level, um, I guess the, that whole concept of, of a, almost like an organized patriarchy trying to stomp down other people, I've always found it, I don't want to say silly per se, because I'm not, I, I don't want to undermine the, the struggles of genuine feminism and such, but I find it to be a limited view, I guess. Of, of history. I don't really see history as a, a struggle between um, men and women, so to speak. Um, it, it's largely the history of cooperation between people and we just focus on the bad stuff. Um, but in that particular thing, you're right, it's more about, um, about a family kind of thing. And the term patriarch historically, you know, it's just been about the, the leader of a family, someone who's trying to to lead a large, you know, group of people that they care about and take care of them and do what's right. And that sort of thing, at least in my experience as a child was kind of missing. My dad was, um, he was a brilliant guy and he was, he was very kind and I loved him, but he was wildly irresponsible and, um, he just blew through money and he cared more about partying and, getting high than you know creating any sort of future for himself or those around him so um that's kind of reflected in the book but as a father i i strive to not be that guy i want to i want to be i don't necessarily want to say a leader but i, I want to be a, a role model for my son and i want to set a positive example that if he chooses to follow it, he has, you know, he has lessons that he can draw from. And I want to build something for my family that's going to, that's going to outlast me and maybe outlast my son, you know? Um, and to me, that's, that's what being a patriarch is. Um, it's not this kind of power thing or, or a way to, to kind of push other people down. It's just about, about, you know, doing what, what you can for those who depend on you. And more about personal influence than structural influence. Yeah. I, I was wondering, would you like to read something for us today, Curtis? I mean, yeah. So from a, a new, a new piece, old piece, whatever. It is. So this, let me bring it up here. 
this is called a cure for insomnia and uh this right now has only gone up on patreon and i put this up in november for my patrons on there so let me get into this it's called a cure for insomnia and i'll get into it sleep disorders a cure for insomnia a film review by katie price one of the tribulations of being a film critic is that I must occasionally venture into the dreaded slush pile of review material, a leaning tower of Blu-rays and DVDs sent to me by magazine editors, media companies, and independent filmmakers. The bulk of that pile is redundant, mainstream schlock, or micro-budget stuff shot on iPhones and edited by someone with a pirated copy of Adobe Premiere. Occasionally, I'm surprised, though. Now and then, I find a hidden gem or a rising star. The short film Sleep Disorders is not one of those pleasant anomalies. Quite the opposite. It is perhaps the most pretentious, faux-artsy, and wannabe edgy film I have ever seen. And this is coming from someone who watches mostly bad cinema for a living. Clocking in at a merciful seven minutes and six seconds, though it seems so much longer, Sleep Disorders is a silent, shaky mess of non-sequitur clips seemingly filmed on a vintage camcorder, to its credit, this aspect seems to be genuine rather than some cheap digital after effect. The film starts by flashing back and forth between scenes of a naked woman sobbing behind her hair in close-up shots of chapped lips and broken teeth in a wide-mouthed scream. The short film follows this established pattern up until the end. Images of burning car wrecks strobe over a man crying while swilling whiskey and popping pills. Scenes flash between a child screeching and slamming his head against a door in the silhouette of a small body jumping from a third floor window. A woman buries her face in a pillow. Then we see hands with chipped nail polish crushing pellets of rat poison over a steaming mug. The sheer amount of terrible footage they managed to cram into this short runtime is almost impressive. The film ends abruptly with a black screen, save for the image of a ghastly translucent woman in the upper left corner of the frame. I found myself startled by this and must give the credit where credit is due. They look, the look of absolute sorrow on the blood-streaked face of the actress was chilling. To convey that kind of emotion with only facial expression is impressive. And to the filmmaker's credit, the effect they used on the woman made her appear like a reflection on my screen rather than an image within the film. I must admit shamefully that I flinched and glanced behind me before realizing she was part of the film. This one interesting moment convinced me to give Sleep Disorders a second watch. Upon closer examination, I noticed the grim woman in, hidden in every scene. Sometimes she was a reflection in the glass, other times she was barely visible in the shadows, and a few she stood plainly in sight, and I'm not sure how I missed her the first time around. Sadly, the bloody forlorn woman is the only interesting part of this amateur film and her constant presence does nothing to tie the non-sequitur shots together with, in theme or aesthetic. While her wide-eyed emotive face and the streaks of blood painted across her naked flesh are visually striking, she's not enough to save this otherwise boorish attempt at experimental horror. At the end of the day, Sleep Disorders is an aesthetic mess and an atmospheric failure, where even the saving grace of the ever-present woman is derivative of internet legends and far more competent films. Director, uncredited. Runtime, seven minutes and six seconds. Produced and distributed by Epialis Films. One out of five stars. The Journal of Katie Price, August 9th, 2020. I haven't journaled in a while, but I can't sleep, and I hope that putting my thoughts on paper might help. I'm too embarrassed to admit it, but some amateur film that I wrote a scathing review of seems to be lingering in my head. 
Sleep Disorder seemed like a cringy joke the first time I watched it. It's poorly executed, an ugly film with no sense of direction, but whoever made it might just have a future. The bloody wide-eyed woman from the film, I just can't strike her image from my mind. I know it's my mind playing tricks on me, but I swear I keep seeing her out of the corner of my eye or as a reflection in the windows. I feel her watching me while I try to sleep and almost expect her to, to almost expect to see her when I open my eyes. Despite all the technical and conceptual flaws of sleep disorders, the kid who made it, I hope it was a kid at least, has an uncanny sense for tapping into dread. I wonder if that was intentional or something they stumbled upon instinctually. When Wes Craven created Freddy Krueger, he was deliberately imbuing the character with elements that struck a primal chord in man. His claws harkened back to our fear of bears and cats from our days living in caves. The same trick was used with the film Candyman, drawing on our instinctual revulsion to the buzzing of bees. Did the maker of sleep disorders give the film the same kind of thought? I can't imagine so, considering the lazy ineptitude of all the other elements. I can't believe I'm saying this, but I may give the film another view. I missed the wide-eyed woman during the first watch. I wonder if other elements may still be hidden. Maybe I'll find a reason to lighten my review before submitting it. It's doubtful, but I can't sleep anyway. The Journal of Katie Price, August 12th, 2020. It's been days since I've slept. Literal fucking days. I've tried pills. I've tried booze. I've masturbated and meditated and read until my eyes burned. Nothing works. I gave up on sleep for a while and Googled Epialis films. No record of it anywhere. I did find out that Epialis is a Greek nightmare demon. Clever, huh? As for the film, I found nothing but a thread on Reddit and some wiki sites. There are legends of the film, supposedly going back to the 80s. Most versions of the story say it started off as a secret military footage from some kind of sleep experiment that ran adjacent to MK Ultra. The original version was just her, Sarah X, they call her, the woman lurking in all the scenes of sleep disorders. She's kept naked in the cell and forced to stay awake for weeks, first by lights and noise, then by sprinklers, and finally by stimulants. In some other versions of the story, they cut off her eyelids, which is why her eyes are so wide. In others, it's a symptom of the drugs. Over the course of the months, she goes absolutely mad. She begs and threatens her mysterious captors who are ever-present just out of sight behind a one-way mirror. When it's clear they won't take mercy on her prayer, when it's clear they won't take mercy on her, she prays to God. When God doesn't answer, she prays to someone else. Eventually, her heart gives out, and she screams a dying curse that no one who watched her suffer will ever sleep again. Most online accounts agree that the eggheads involved went mad and either committed suicide or died in horrific accidents. After that, it gets muddled. Some say that one of the scientists leaked the footage to try and appease the dead woman. Others say the government leaked it on purpose as part of a psyop. One Christian conspiracy site claimed that it was leaked by Satanists high up in the U.S. government. However it got leaked, people started watching it. True to the words of her curse, Sarah X haunted anyone who watched her suffering. She became ever-present, always watching them, making sure they would never sleep again. And when they can't take it anymore, when they slit their wrists or crash their car, they get added to the film reel, trapped in grainy low-res hell for all eternity. But that's bullshit, right? Ghosts aren't real. Cursed movies don't exist. Internet legends are just modern campfire stories. Then why do I feel Sarah X breathing on my neck? Why do I see a reflection in my whiskey? Why can't I fall the fuck to sleep? Obituary of Katie Price, 
August 18th, 2020. Katie Price, 33, died unexpectedly on August 16th, 2020. Katie had a, love, a lifelong love affair with film. She made her first movies in the Garfield High School AV Club, studied film production at NYU, and went on to be a respected critic and occasional producer. She was survived by her parents, Joel and Alyssa Price. In lieu of a traditional service, a memorial screening of a short film called Sleep Disorders, featuring Katie, will be held at the Green Street Theater. Friends and relatives are invited to celebrate Katie's life at this screening, which immortalizes her on the silver screen the way she would have wanted. Donations may be made in Katie's name to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Wonderful. I love how the story's arranged. Thank you. Excellent, excellent work, Curtis. Thank you very much for sharing that. I, I wonder, uh, do you have a backlog of projects, writing projects, or, or do you generally wait for ideas and go one from one, one by one? I have, I have a backlog. Um, I'm a self-indulgent writer in a lot of ways which has been problematic um, making a career, but I, I've been better about trying to do, I guess, what seems like the best or what I have the best opportunity for. So right now I, I need to write the third book in my Bad World series, which I've been putting off for a while because other projects have come up. I have an opportunity to put a collection together with a publisher that I'm very excited about. And I have another, I signed a contract with Weird House Press to do a new novel, but I have a bunch of other stuff that's been kind of brewing in the background that it's, it's always just a matter of time to try, you know, it's a matter of trying to find the time to do it. Um, before I started Devil's Night, I had started a project called Couch Surfing Through the Twelve Chambers of Hell, and that got put on hold because I had the opportunity to do Devil's Night. Um, and now I'm trying to do Couch Surfing Through Patreon. So, yeah, there, there's a bunch of stuff I want to do. Um, I have a, a dozen or so so ideas and holding patterns. Um, you know, it's just a matter of, of time, really. <laughs> sure, sure. And, and going back for one more moment to Salem, there was there was one last thing I wanted to ask you about. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this whole fiasco that happens around October in Salem. Um, I have mixed feelings on it. So, I mean, it's fun. <laughs> um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of Salem residents hate it just because of the traffic. But um, I, I think it's fun, but it is very exploitative and it, it was meant to be so. So Salem's economy was really based on sea trade. Um, and we were a huge seaport and, and trading hub to the point that um, I guess China thought Salem was its own country for a while because we did so much import and export. And that eventually died up. Industry just died here. And someone was like, hey, remember they used to do awful shit to old women here? Let's try to bring in tourism around that. And that was a conscious idea. you know. Um, so they made the first kind of like witch maps and things like that. So it was this manufactured manufactured tourist industry intentionally made to exploit the tragedies that happened here. And if you take something like Danvers, which is the next town over where a lot of this stuff actually happened, Danvers doesn't want any part of it. Um, they're, they, they're not called Salem anymore because, um, but most of, most of the, the terrible stuff actually happened in Danvers and um, where Danvers State Mental Institution was, which is now condos, um, that was Hathorne Hill and one of the, the witch trial judges, you know, owned a house there before it was Danvers State. So Danvers actually has a lot more 
history um, than, than Salem proper. But yeah, it, it's fun and I don't begrudge anybody their fun, but I don't think most of the people that come here have a proper understanding of the history or, or the tragedy. And the fact was the, these people weren't witches. Like the people who ki were killed were not witches. You know, they weren't, they, they were largely killed because of, of real estate and because they, they didn't have enough family or, or influence to protect them. They were easy targets. Um, yeah, it was just, it was a terrible time where, where people were victimized and, and had their land taken from them. Um, and there was a madness to the town, you know, it, people just got into this whole, like this mass psychosis. Um, and you know, the witch shops can be fun and cool, but it's, I think it does belittle what, what actually happened here. And, um, which is unfortunate. And there are, you know, monuments here to the actual victims and, and people go and check that out. But I think probably less people then go to the witch shops and and um, visit the Samantha statue and all that sort of thing. But also, it it keeps the town running financially. You know, that's that's where most of our most of our money in the town comes from Halloween. And you know, a lot of these little shops they without October they can't survive. And I imagine a bunch of them probably have gone out of business at this point. Um, because we didn't have a Halloween season really, um, or not of the same caliber. So, you know, it's, it's a mix. I, I think that you have to kind of accept it for what it is. And, um, but it's important, especially if, if you're historically minded to, to understand what really happened here. And this isn't really which city, it's not this big occult hub. It's a place where, you know, some unfortunate people were were very cruelly victimized. Yeah, and I, I was reading recently about something I had never heard of called the Little Ice Age. So you'd have these really, really intense, deep, long winters that were brutally cold. And apparently, uh, well, there's a new theory that that maybe that led to some of the hysteria that the weather was just so severe, mix this with uh, extreme religious ideology and uh, that it could have led to some of this. And I thought that was a fascinating idea that maybe, maybe we're seeing something like that now. Yeah, it could be. And, you know, I, I, I'm sure that that impacts kind of the zeitgeist when you're seeing that sort of thing, especially like you said, when you come from a climate of, um, of really extreme religious ideology, um, if that's how you view the world, you know, that you're going to assume these things. Um, you know, that's the other thing. Salem is historically, it's, it's much more a really Orthodox Christian city than, than anything um, tied to witchcraft or paganism or anything like that. Um, so, yeah, and, um, I do appreciate that I've, I've gotten to go to these sites and, you know, um, kind of view them for what they are and, and appreciate the history the real history of the city. And then, you know, there's, there's other history here too, beyond that, you know, you have, um, you have the house of seven Gables and Nathaniel Hawthorne, and you have these, you know, you have one of the oldest cemeteries in, in new England where Lovecraft used to go and got some of his ideas from and um, beyond Salem has a lot of history beyond the witch trials. Um, even like I said, is a is a trading city in a port. The PBS Museum has 
all these beautiful um, imports and exports from that period. Um, so there, there's a lot of rich history here beyond that. Yeah, like you mentioned, the birthplace of Hawthorne. I mean, that's significant enough for any small town. Yes. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Well, Curtis, it's been great talking to you today. I'd like to like to thank you for coming on the show and hope to hope to see you again here at some point. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much.